0: So I'm just enjoying so much being with you all. This is such a wonderful church, and Pastor Mark and Pastor Renee have been so kind, and all the staff, and um, we, I've just loved it. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for uh, this time that we share together tonight and these, these times that we're spending together Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge our desperate need for you, that you are our teacher, you are the one that can reveal truth to us and imprint it upon our hearts. So we ask you to have your way during the times that we spend together tonight, and uh, just fill this place with your presence. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're in part two of Faith and Reason Made Simple. Which is also part two of creation versus evolution. It's what we start out with, and we'll talk about these issues again next week. And then we'll move on to talking about how we know the Bible is the Word of God and how we know Jesus Christ is who the Bible says that He is. We uh, we looked last week. We we started on talking about the the flaws of the theory of evolution. We saw that it violates first of all the second law of thermodynamics. It violates the law of biogenesis. It, purposely confuses microevolution, which is real and scientific. It's just adaptation within a kind. But they confuse that purposely with macroevolution, one kind turning into another, which has never been observed scientifically, and they do that to try to convince young people and whoever that evolution is true and is real. And then uh, we saw also the fossil record contradicts evolution, that there should be millions and millions of transitional forms, and they're just not found in the fossil record. So that brings us up to where we ended last week. We're going to finish this up and then move into the evidence of a creator. So we're going to look now at number five, mutations do not bring increased information. Why is that so important? Well, if you know much about evolution, you know that the way, what they describe is that uh, the way things have evolved, and we've came all the way from a, like a, a, an initial living cell and then became like a bacteria and then uh, started developing and eventually over millions and millions of years became an ape-like creature and then evolved into human beings. And all of that, they say, happened by mutations when, when there was a copying of the genetic information from one gene- generation to another, when there would be mutations that were added new qualities to a a creature, then natural selection would choose those qualities, and uh, it'd be the survival of the fittest, and and so then that would those creatures would reproduce, and that quality would be passed on to the next generation. And as you mount those up over millions and millions of years, you could. You could move from a very simple type creature to an extremely complex creature with a lot more genetic information. Well, there's a real problem with that. We know quite a bit about mutations now, and mutations are mistakes. And they're almost always a mistake when something gets left out. It's not new things being added. It's taking away. So you certainly, by mutations, could go from complex creatures to simple creatures. But you can't go from simple to complex with mutations as your engine that's driving all of this. But notice, um, I might have showed you this uh, a week ago Sunday, but I want you to notice how mutations are said to have fit in with some of our evolutionary process.
1: until our ancestor is a three-inch-long water worm.
0: So this is us 550 million years ago. This is us
1: 550 million years ago. Mutations create distinct male and female sexes.
0: We produce more offspring, passing on more genes. So mutations create distinct male and female uh, sexes. That's pretty powerful mutations, isn't it? I mean, anybody that knows anything at all, what it means to be male and female, there's, that's pretty complex. So they're saying that mutations can add all of this, it's like the miracle drug, you know, mutations can do anything. And that's, that's the way evolution is explained to our kids. But that is not reality. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, wait a second, let me go back here and, and just tell you a little bit about this. That So for more complex life forms to evolve from simpler life forms, an increase of genetic information would be needed. You've got to keep adding information. But mutations are the result of missing genetic information. Now I want to show you a couple clips by Richard Dawkins, probably the most outspoken evolutionist in the world. And the first one, I want you to just see how confident he is that evolution is a proven fact. You cannot question it. And then immediately we're going to show you a second clip where he's asked about this issue, about mutations adding genetic information. He's asked, can you give an example of where mutations... An evolutionary process has been seen to add genetic information to the genome and notice his response. So two clips here. One of the main reasons why people are religious is because they're persuaded by the apparent design of living things. And that's completely destroyed by, by Darwin. If you actually read any book by a biologist about evolution, it's hard to see how you could fail to be persuaded of it. it, it it's, I mean, the evidence is, is just absolutely packed. There's no, there's, no, there's no doubt about it. It's not a controversial issue. It's, it's completely certain. It's as certain as the fact that the Earth and the other planets orbit the sun. Can you
1: give an example of a genetic mutation or, or, or an evolutionary process which ha- can be seen to increase the information in the genome?
0: just I think. So he says, this is absolutely unquestionable that evolution's true. And when asked to give one example, which there should be just millions and millions of them where you'd see mutations are adding increased genetic information to go from simple to complex. He can't think of a single one. Because that's not the way mutations work. They're mistakes that take away things rather than add things. This is Dr. John Sanford, one of the foremost experts when it comes to genetics. And he says, Indeed, beneficial mutations are so exceedingly rare as to not contribute in any meaningful way. Sanford concludes that the frequency and generally harmful or neutral nature of mutations prevent them from being useful to any scheme of random evolution. So the whole engine of evolution really just doesn't work. It's not going to move things forward. Um, I got a little confused. I'm sorry about where the videos went. That's why I'm pausing there. So we see number five is that mutations don't add genetic information. So we've seen evolution... Violates the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says the amount of usable, informa- or usable energy in any closed system decreases. Things move from order to chaos. That's a scientific law where evolution says, no, it started with total chaos, just an explosion, and now it's very well ordered on its own. Number two, it violates the law of biogenesis, which says life only comes from life, but evolution says, no, life here on earth there was no life, and life emerged out of non-life. Number three, it purposely confuses um, microevolution and macroevolution. It violates, number four, the, the fossil record. And then number five, we just saw that mutations do not bring added genetic information. So there's all these scientific problems with the theory of evolution. And number six really leads us into the other side of things, which is much more fun to talk about, is that's the evidence of a creator, because the theory of evolution contradicts the order, beauty, design, and information we observe everywhere in the universe. Everything we look at looks designed. Matter of fact, Richard Dawkins mentioned that in that first clip. He said the reason people are religious is because they get confused by the apparent design in things. Well, he may call it apparent and deny that it's there, even though the fact that he's saying it's apparent is he's saying, well, yeah, it looks designed. Well, it looks designed because it is designed. And that's Contrary to what we would expect to see if evolution were true, if it was just an explosion and then random processes, we should see a lot of things that just look like they don't really work very well and they're not put together very well. But That's not what we see. And that leads us into what we want to begin to talk about tonight and next week. The evidences of a creator. So what would we look for to see the evidence of a creator? We'd look for two things. One would be design— because design always points to a designer. This building had an architect. Somebody designed it. It didn't just fall into place. There was not an explosion in a local factory. And sure enough, everything fell into place. And my goodness, we got a new building. Somebody had to design it. Anytime we see design, even something as simple as this table or this stool, we know enough to know somebody designed these things. Because there's, there's not a lot of design feature in it. It's pretty simple compared to a machine or a building. But there's enough, you and I know, somebody designed it. And when we see information, if we see a book, if we see a computer software program, anytime we see information, we know that there's intelligence behind it. It did not, it did not come into being apart from intelligence. So if we can find designed, and if we can find information, it, that doesn't necessarily prove that God is there. Now, the Bible does say that without faith it's impossible to please him. Faith is a part. God designed, he, he, he made things to where we need to relate to him by faith and that's, but it's not blind faith. It's not irrational faith. It's faith that's backed up by evidence. It's faith that, that conf, is confirmed by what we see in reality, that we see all this evidence of a designer. So we're going to look at eight levels of evidence. And now, everybody do this with me. I do this to all age groups, so. But uh, it'll, it'll keep you moving here for a second. Everybody put your hand way up high and say, from the biggest, the biggest. To, the to the smallest. Now, we only do that just as a memory tool, just to remember, okay, remember that ev- those eight levels of evidence were from something really big to something really small. And here they are the universe being the biggest thing we're going to look at, and then it's going to get smaller, the solar system, the earth, living creatures on the earth, the human body, the microscopic world, the human cell, and the DNA in the nucleus of the human cell. Now, I want to pause for a second and, and give you part, the reason I do it this way and present it this way. It's because I have a goal. And it, first of all, my goal is not that you walk away from these sessions saying, wow, Rick's really smart. That's not my goal. I would feel like I failed if that's what you walk away with. My goal is that you would say, you know, that really wasn't that complex. I can remember that. I could memorize that. Eight things, universe, solar system, earth, living creatures on the earth, human body, microscopic world, the human cell and the DNA and the nucleus of the cell. I can memorize that. Now, you might not remember every detail, but it, it's way beyond where most believers are at in being able to explain why they believe they're created. If you have those eight things. And then you can go back once in a while, and you can kind of try to remember what was behind some of those things, and you'll remember some of it. If you get the book, you can go back and look over some of those things and re- refresh your memory. But my goal is that you can—that I present things to you that you can leave and say, I grasp it, I understand it, at least enough of it that I could memorize the key parts and use it in my life. Many of you are like me. You're, there, there are a few younger people in the room, but most of you are like me. You're either at least parenting age, and many are grandparenting age, and sometimes we can begin to think, well, I don't really need this stuff because there ain't no college professor gonna mess with me. I'm not going back to college. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't ask any of us to just prepare ourselves to go to heaven and we're done, did he? He said, you shall be my witnesses. And that needs to especially be true of our influence upon our own kids and our grandkids and our nieces and nephews and then other people God brings, God, br- God brings into our life. So we need to learn these things. We need to be an army of people who are equipped to do what the Bible says. Always be ready to give a defense to those who ask you about the hope that's within you. And this is a primary area. Is there a God who created us? And so I challenge you, memorize these things I, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand because I know the answer. The answer is, if everybody in this room, if you try, you can do this. You can memorize those eight points. And I challenge you to do that so God can use you in the future. In all of these areas, we're going to find a confirmation of something found in Romans one twenty. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Notice God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen. So the things about God that we can't see have been, we see a witness of it, a testimony of it, just by looking at what He made. Notice that doesn't say anything about reading the Bible. We should read the Bible, that's special revelation, and we should understand and know the person of Jesus, that's special revelation. God came in the flesh to us. But before you ever read a Bible, before you ever meet Jesus, you have a witness to your heart of the reality of God. Everybody in the world does. Anybody that's honest that looks at the trees and the birds and looks at the human body and looks at the earth itself and rainfall and and sunshine and snow, we see a witness of the majesty of God. And that's what he said. I revealed my invisible attributes, my eternal power and divine nature to you. So nobody has excuse. And I want to also say this to you. When you're talking to somebody, and many of you, I know this because in every church I go to, it's true, some of you have family members who now say they don't believe in God anymore. Or maybe they never did. I want you to know this. They know there's a God. They may say, I'm an atheist, but they know there's a God. They're denying what they know to be true, but Scripture says, if I'm going to believe them or what Scripture says, I'm going to believe what Scripture says. And Scripture says they know. There is no excuse for anybody to be an atheist. Richard Dawkins has tons of evidence that's been given to him by God, that God is there. He just chooses to deny it. And so if you're talking to somebody, now, I'm not saying that you use that to then be mean to them, but just have a confidence inside of you. It's a matter of them, the Holy Spirit, bringing them to a point of yielding to truth. And God can use you, but you're not starting out with you know, somebody that truly does not believe there is a God. They're choosing to deny it, but according to Scripture, they have no excuse to not believe in God. They know he's there. Okay, we're going to look at tonight the first four areas. A finely tuned universe, the universe itself. How can it give us witness of a creator? Well, scientists have been studying the universe for some time, and they tell us now that there's, there's all these laws of physics. And the physical constants involved in them, and that, so things like the force of gravity, the speed of light, the um, cosmological constant, the ratio of electrons to protons—there's all these things in physics, and they have mathematical formulations. Like there is the, the law of gravity; there, the force of gravity—it's a mathematical formula. It has a a very distinct uh. uh power or you know force matter of fact the law of gravity is a great one to uh, 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 as an example i heard a physicist that said this he said if you could imagine a ruler from one end of the universe to the other that's 90 billion light years they believe so it's a big ruler and he said if you take that ruler and you divide it into inches and then you mark on the ruler this is where the force of gravity is he said it's so precise, that if you move that one inch either way, there would be no galaxies or stars or planets, and we wouldn't be here. It's perfect. And there's at least 30 of these things that are all perfect. Now, how do we explain that? It's easy for us to explain it. We say, of course they're perfect. God set all the dials. Here's a little video that tells a little more about that.
1: From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry, Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely.
0: Now most of the scientists that you just heard quoted there aren't Christians. And some of them would consider themselves atheistic. And and I was doing a a debate type thing at a college campus one time and a a gal challenged me on that. She said, well, some of the scientists you're quoting, they don't believe in creation. And I said, that's the point, though, of why I'm using them as an example, that it's not just Christians that say the universe is finely tuned. All scientists do, even people that don't believe in creation. Well, that brings us uh, to, there's some of the, the other numbers. I mean, it just gets crazy numbers of how precise this is. Here's what some scientists, even non-Christians, are saying about this. It says, uh, Sir Fred Hoyle said, A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintelligent or intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming so as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Dr. Paul Davies says, There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. So, what is the. Everybody agrees it's like that. Creationists, evolutionists, we all say, yeah, it's perfect. Well, we say it's perfect because God made it perfect. That's rational. So what is a rational explanation from an evolutionary point of view of why it's perfect? Well, they've got an explanation. It's called the multiverse theory. Now, you know what that is? That's a a theory that says, well, maybe this isn't the only universe. Matter of fact, maybe there are millions of universes. And if there are millions of universes, then out of millions, you might accidentally get one that's perfect. That's the best they can come up with. Now, notice what Neil deGrasse Tyson, another major spokesman for evolution, says about the multiverse.
2: The Big Bang, by the way, could fit into a larger story. For example, the multiverse. Big Bang is probably not the whole story, it's probably a piece of a bigger story. So maybe there are multiple Big Bangs. This would give us the multiverse. We don't have data for this, but we have good theoretical and philosophical reasons to think that a multiverse exists.
0: So there's no data for it. It's the best they can come up with. We've got theoretical and philosophical reasons to believe that it exists. And it's really, he could have went on and said, because we're trying to explain why this one's perfect. But we don't have any data for it. You, you see what, what's happening. It, it, my heart sometimes just breaks inside when I know it's Christian young people that are being mocked and told in, in schools all across America, you're stupid for believing what you believe. You don't have any data to back it up. When in reality, the data all points to what we believe. It doesn't point to a random accidental, unguided universe. It points to a very controlled, perfectly set universe that we live in that confirms to us that there is a creator. Well, within creation, there are a lot of stars. They believe there's about 70 sextillion stars. To put that in perspective, that's enough stars that everybody on, living on the earth today, today could have 10 trillion stars of their own. It's a lot of stars. Now, if that's true, from an evolutionary point of view, that would mean since the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, you'd have to produce 579 million stars per hour for the whole 13.8 billion years. We should see stars developing everywhere. That's not what we're seeing. The Bible has a very simple explanation of where all those stars came from. He made the stars also. (laughs) God didn't waste a lot of time with that one. But notice what he says in Isaiah. It's amazing. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. I like to meditate on that verse once in a while and just think, that's how big our God is. 70 sextillion stars, he calls them all by name. I got three boys and sometimes I get their names mixed up. Can you imagine 70 sextillion? I want you to know too, my friends, he knows you and he knows your name. He's an awesome, awesome God. Well, this whole developing of stars, it's one of the mysteries of science. How do stars form? Because, you see, they they say that there's really not enough gravity, uh, because not enough matter in the cloud that ends up condensing upon itself and becoming a star... There's not enough matter to create enough gravity to make this happen. And the second mystery is how do galaxies stay together because these spiral galaxies should not be holding together. They should, stars should be flying out of them, but they're not. They're holding together. They can't figure out why. And then also the universe continues to expand, even though there is gravity within the universe that should be keeping it from expanding, but it's expanding. So these three mysteries have caused scientists to come up with a, an answer and they say this that they say well the universe is made up of four point six percent atoms that's what we can deal with that's the known universe but beyond this four point six percent there's twenty four percent of the universe is dark matter that's what's causing stars to form and galaxies to hold together and percent of its dark energy, that's what's causing the universe to expand. And they will readily acknowledge we have no idea what dark matter is or what dark energy is. We can't detect it, we can't hear it, we can't see it. They just made it up. If you think I'm kidding, listen to what Neil deGrasse Tyson says about this.
2: Now, dark matter, dark energy, just these, I, we don't know what dark matter is. It's 85% of the gravity of the universe is dark matter. We, it's something we don't know what it is. So we just call it dark matter. We don't know what the universe has some pressure in the vacuum that's making it accelerate in its expansion against the wishes of gravity. We don't know what that is either. We call that dark energy. This sounds like we know something. We don't. I could call this Fred and Wilma, okay? It doesn't matter. We are dumb, stupid about what these two things are.
0: Now, I don't criticize scientists for coming up with dark matter and dark energy. They're trying to explain something that's a mystery. But And he's acknowledging we. You can call it Fred and Wilma. We we don't know what it is. We can't see it. We can't hear it. We can't detect it. But we just know something's out there causing things to be held together. Something is forming stars, and something is causing the universe to expand. Well, it's interesting that the Bible addresses all three of those things. Uh Uh-oh, I lost control. Help me, Brendan, help me. Okay, there we go. Genesis 1, we already saw this one. It says, he made the stars also. That's how they are formed. How is galaxies being held together? Colossians 1, 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Hebrews 1, 3, he and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And what about the expanding universe? There's 10 verses in the Old Testament that say this. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Now, I realize that using Bible verses to prove that God did it is not going to fly in a secular environment, but my point is this. It's happening, and it's a mystery, and they can't figure out why, so they made up dark matter and dark energy, and it's just interesting. The Bible addressed all three of those things. And if we just trust what the Word of God says, we have an answer. That's why stars have formed. That's why galaxies hold together and the universe continues to expand. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That, by the way, is a a real photograph from the Hubble spacecraft of the Eye of God Nebula. Isn't that beautiful? We see that the entire universe, let me go back one Pause there for a second because we're done with that one, but I want to just put an end to, to that one. So, the whole universe itself, none of it looks like, I, I mean, just think with me for a moment. What should it look like if it's there? Because 13.8 billion years ago, all of the matter and energy in the known universe now was in this tiny little dot, and it got so hot and was spinning so fast that it exploded. And nobody's done anything to control it since then. On its own, it went from that to a universe that's perfect. Now, I'm just being real. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck when I say, I'm just being real when I say, I don't have enough faith to believe that that could happen without an intelligent, powerful being behind it all. To me, it just, it's irrational To believe that that is like that by accident. Well, what about the solar system? I'm not going to talk as much about that, but it's the same type of principle. When we look at our solar system, we find the orbits of the planets are like clockwork. We can know a hundred years from now, on this date, at this time, exactly where they'll all be because they orbit like clockwork. We also see that the planets are unique. Some of them are terrestrial. Some of them are gaseous. They don't look like they all came out of an explosion. They're made of different substances. And the gas giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn are critical for life on Earth because of their gravitational pull, protecting us from things coming into the solar system. And the rotations of the planets, Venus and Uranus, Uranus and Pluto rotate or, or, or rotate in opposite directions of the others, And yet if you had a spinning ball of of material that exploded, everything that exploded off of it would all be spinning the same way. And then also the moons are orbiting the planets in opposite directions in some cases. So nothing about the solar system looks random. It all looks ordered and wonderful, just like we would expect. Let's move on to the next level, the earth. We'll talk a little bit more about this. Um, We find that the earth looks like it was designed to be inhabited. Interestingly enough, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, that he created the earth not to be a waste place, but to be inhabited. Do you have that, brother? And what we find that they're, they're telling us now is that there are, and by the way, I have a, a DVD out there called The Privileged Planet that deals with this, just this issue in particular, They say that there's at least 75 different parameters needed for a planet to have life on it. You've got to have the right amount of liquid water. You have to have the right tectonic plates. You've got to have the right electromagnetic field. It's got to orbit the right kind of star and be the right distance from that star. It has to have the right size moon at the right distance to control the tilt of the planet and to control the tides of the oceans on and on, 75 different things. They all have to be just right or you can't have life on a planet. You know what the earth has? <laughs> They're all perfect. They're just the way they need to be. The moon is just the right distance away, so the earth tilts at 23 and half degrees so that we have winter and summer and seasons. Everything about it again, looks very much designed. Um, Not sure what that is. Let's just celebrate a little bit the earth there. (laughs) So the earth is an amazing place. And uh, I wanna talk a little bit about some of the specific things in the earth. Here we go. The chances of this all being random, they say, is one in a million billion. Or it's a pretty sure thing if God did it. <laughs> Amen? But let's look at a few things that we take for granted about here on the earth. The, the hydrological system, that's the watering system of the earth. You know, water evaporates out of the oceans and the seas, and it condenses in the atmos- upper atmospheres, creates clouds in the upper atmosphere, winds blow it across the land and then it releases its w- water in rain, hail, sleet, snow, different forms and it waters the ground and excess goes back into the streams and rivers goes back into the ocean. It's pretty amazing. But how effective is it and how how efficient does it need to be? Well, let's just look for a little bit and think of how much water are we talking? So, I did some calculations. If you took one rainstorm not one that goes all the way from California to New York. Let's just say one rainstorm dropping water in a 500-mile-by-500-mile radius, okay? And if it dropped an average of two inches of rain. We've seen times, you have it here, we have it up in Moline, where sometimes once in a while you get one that, man, we got six inches of rain overnight or seven inches of rain. So we're just going to say two inches of rain, 500 miles by 500 miles, how much water would that be? Well, I call it Lake Rainstorm. It would create a lake from where I live in the Quad Cities all the way to Chicago, 10 miles wide and 25 feet deep. It would be by far the biggest lake in all of Illinois. That's one little rainstorm. And every day around the earth, there are rainstorms dropping a lot more rain than that So God had to make a system that needed to be extremely efficient for life to exist on this planet. Well, when I was studying this, I saw this picture, and I noticed this word over in the left-hand side there called transpiration, and I thought, what in the world? I almost ignored it because I'm just looking for a picture, and I like this picture. And then I thought, well, if it's on the picture, maybe I should look into it, and I'm glad I did. What do we call it when we sweat? perspiration when a tree sweats it's called transpiration and they do and if they didn't you'd be dead and I'd be dead they have this amazing system to draw water up through the roots we know that and this it's really miracle after miracle that the water is able to get to the top of the tree that's a whole nother story but it is miraculous but when the water gets toward the top of the tree, on the bottom side of the leaves, there's these little pores that open and close depending on how hot it is and how much water is being drawn up. When it's a hot day and the tree needs more water, the pores open up more and it releases more of the excess water after it's been used by the tree. It's released back into the atmosphere. So when I, th- I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And I thought, well, what are we talking here? Maybe a cup of water? You know, a a day or something that a tree transpires? So I did a little research and found, here's an example. On a hot summer day, a maple tree transpires 50 to 60 gallons of water per hour. So now you can see what I'm talking about when I say if this were not true, we'd be dead. Because without this system, the earth would not be able to produce food. What about seeds and soil? Think about this for a moment. You take a little seed, and what do you got to add? dirt, water and sunlight. And amazing, amazing things happen. And we take that for granted, too. Think about this. Look at those seeds for a moment, and guess in your mind what do you think those seeds are? Now, probably one of the, the, the best an- or the, the most frequent answers I get is sunflower seeds, and others say oats. That's what I thought it looks like, oat seeds. I'll just say a few different things, but let me show you what those tiny little seeds are. You add dirt, water, and sunlight to those seeds, and you get this. It's a sequoia. Isn't that a miracle? We live in a miraculous place that God has created. And then there's this perfect balance. You see, where there's billions of us breathing in oxygen every moment of our life, and billions of animals breathing in oxygen with every breath, and we're breathing back out carbon dioxide. You would think it wouldn't take long at all. We would use all the oxygen up, fill the atmosphere with carbon dioxide, and life would be done, except for this miraculous truth. Every plant, every tree, every cornfield, every flower... Every blade of grass breathes in carbon dioxide to live and breathes out oxygen when they exhale so that there's perfect balance. Does it look accident? What an amazing accident. Aren't we lucky? It's what some people want us to believe. I tend to believe what an awesome God who has created a wonderful place. Water, if it was like other liquids and, and it condensed when it froze, we'd be dead. But it's unique. It expands. Think about it. If that were not true, in the wintertime, the surface of lakes and streams and even oceans would, would uh, freeze and then fall to the bottom, continue that process, and pretty soon it'd be solid water and life would be done but it has a rare characteristic. It also has this beautiful characteristic that I think God did a lot of things like this that made things just beautiful, too. When you see snow crystals, no two are alike, and they're amazing artistic works of God. Let's look just a little bit at some living creatures. This first one is a bird called a brush turkey. He lives in Australia. His, his nest is not up in the trees like most birds, but rather his nest is on the ground. It's a, it's a mound that's three to six foot tall and 12 to 15 feet wide. We have that, brother. And, um, and so when Mama Brush Turkey lays her eggs, she puts them inside this mound, and they'll be there for seven weeks. But here's the miracle of it. The temperature inside of that mound has to stay 91 degrees Fahrenheit for seven weeks outside. And the humidity levels have to stay stationary too, or stable. How does that happen? Papa Brush Turkey, for seven weeks, moves sticks and leaves and sand around in various places to control the temperature inside the mound so that seven weeks later, because he does such a good job of it, little baby brush turkeys will come forth, a new life. Now let me ask you, if the brush turkey had to evolve that ability over a million year period, isn't it true that brush turkeys would have been extinct? Somehow they have this bread within them that God has made them able to do something amazing. The next one, Um, is a pretty amazing uh, animal because it's so small and it's so gross and yet so cool. This is uh, ear mite. This particular type of ear mite lives only in the ear of that kind of moth. And when they set up their home in the ear of the moth, the moth goes deaf in that ear. Sometimes these ear mites will put their home in the left ear of the moth Sometimes the right ear of the moth. They don't care. Either one's fine. But the moment that they would put their home in both ears, the moth would be totally deaf and be a sitting duck for any predator. And nobody has an explanation for this, but these little ear mites, if they put their home in the right ear, they will never go to the left ear of that same moth or vice versa. They will always leave one ear open. How could an ear mite know to do that? Another amazing testimony of the grace of God. This is a much more beautiful creature. Think of monarch butterflies for a moment with me. Monarch butterflies are so pretty. Well, what many people don't realize is that they, 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 most of them come from, there's a few exceptions, but most live in this grove of trees in southern Mexico over the winter. These trees will get just solid orange. But in the springtime, they only lay their eggs on milkweed plants, and in the springtime, when it starts getting warm, and milkweed plants start growing up here in northern Mexico and southern Texas and such, well, they all come to life, and they migrate up here, and they lay their eggs on the milkweed plants, and they die. And little caterpillars come forth from the eggs, and they start eating the milkweed plants. They go into the chrysalis stage. They become forth as beautiful little butterflies. And during this process... It's getting warmer, and milkweed plants are starting to grow further north. So they become butterflies. They fly north. They lay their eggs on milkweed plants, and they die. And they lived six to eight weeks. Now, that process will happen all summer long, to where in the end of the summer, you and I get to see monarch butterflies in our part of the world, and then even further north, they'll end up in southern Canada by the end of the summer and the northern United States. Now we got a problem because it's going to start getting cold. And they're a long way from where they started last winter. But the miracle is this, at this time of year, those monarch butterflies, this generation, will migrate back to the same group of trees that great-great-great-grandma and grandpa lived in last winter. And they will live for eight months, that generation. Six to eight weeks, six to eight weeks, six to eight weeks, six to eight weeks, eight months. And it happens every year. You see, really everywhere you look, you find, uh, I'm going to skip over bees, although they're they're really cool, but we're just running out of time, so I want to give you just a couple more here. Giraffes. Um, Giraffes. I love giraffes because they're tall, and I always wanted to be tall, and I never quite made it. But they get like 19 feet tall, so you've got a problem there getting blood to the head because you're working against gravity, so they have the biggest heart of any creature in the earth. And it pumps that blood up against gravity, and it gets it all the way to the head, but you've got a problem the moment they get thirsty, and they bend over... And they put their head all the way down to get a drink. Now gravity's working with that powerful heart and it would blow their brains out except for they have something no other creature has. They've got special valves all up and down their neck that open and close depending on whether they have their head up or down. And when they put their head down, the valve clamps shut so that very little blood can get through. When they raise their head, the valves open back up. But now God wasn't done there because it's going to take a moment once those valves shut down and that flow of blood is shut down to their head, it's going to take a moment when they raise their head back up for the next flow of blood to get there. So God put a sponge in the top of their head that while their head's down, it fills up with blood. And when they raise up, rather than faint and fall over, they, their head is, uh, uh, receives nutrients from the blood in the sponge until the next flow of blood comes up the neck. Everything you look at in human creature, or in creatures on the Earth is like that. What about beavers? Beavers I've seen a documentary one time where these beavers were building this dam, and the, the D- Department of Natural Resources and whatever, they, they thought, we don't want this dam here." And so they sent a whole crew out there with all their machinery. And they spent all day, and these guys got the job done. They removed that beaver dam until the next morning. (laughs) It was back again. They're amazing. They have uh, 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 transparent eyelids so that they can see underwater when they're, and they've got a special flap in the back of their throat so that it protects them from swallowing water while they're carrying sticks underwater. They've got all these special features, but just their abilities too, we have to ask ourselves, how did they learn how to do this stuff? It makes perfect sense in creation, but not to evolution. And it's really kind of scary because beavers are really good at it now, and now they're learning how to use (laughs) technology, and even computer technology, and so I don't know where we're headed, with these beavers. And then I'm gonna close with this. This is the last one, and we'll close the night. Woodpeckers. Papa Woodpecker comes home at the end of the day and he says to his wife, He says, My head is splitting. I've been beating my head against the tree all day. He would have a major problem except for God gave him some very unique qualities. He's got a shock absorber in his neck that no other bird has. He's got special claws so that he can be upright on the tree all day long. He's got a special tongue that coils up in the back of his mouth so that once he gets the hole in the tree, what he's looking for is a bug. He's got to get the bug now. He uncoils that tongue, sticks it out into the tree. It has a barb on the end of it so he can stab the bug. And then there's a, a special substance that he secretes onto his tongue that's like a sticky, gluey type stuff. He gets the, the, the bug, and now he's got it on this gluey type stuff on his tongue. He brings it back into his mouth. He has another substance that is secreted in his mouth to undo the glue so the bug can fall off, and he swallows it, and he's ready to go again. He also has an amazing set of eyelids that, you know, a woodpecker doesn't go, bam, bam, bam. Bam, he goes, But every time he hits the tree, his eyelids close at the exact moment, and then they open in between every hit so he can stay focused on what he's doing. The earth, the universe, the solar system, living creatures on the earth, everything screams at us.
3: Hallelujah. Well, does this build your faith? What a great word for us tonight, amen? Father, we, are, uh, we stand in awe of you. Father, just learning uh, a little bit more about your creation makes us realize how great you are, how awesome you are. And this builds our faith to know and to love and serve you. Help us, Father, to be a people who never falter in our faith in you. And, Lord, take this knowledge and let it just expand in our our understanding of you and of this world that we live in, that we may live for your glory in all things. And let it be used, Father, in our life to stand in faith in you in all things. In Jesus' name. Everybody said... Amen. Rick will be back next Wednesday night. God bless you folks. Go in the name of the Lord and may his joy be in your heart tonight.